0: Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to become like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So, who do you see as the most looked up to and followed Christian role models? Um, I'm not actually going to give you... It's not like a correct answer or an incorrect answer. I'm just wanting us to start thinking about the sorts of people whom you think would be really good examples of disciples of Jesus whom we should be emulating. Now, I usually find when I ask a person a direct question, who do you think you should be following um, as a a good example of a disciple of Jesus? Usually, when I ask somebody a direct question, they'll they'll give me the name of some virtually unknown Christian. It'll usually be somebody from their own local congregation or from a congregation that they've been in in the past, Um, but their characteristics will usually be quite similar. It'll be somebody who has a strong faith in Jesus It'll often be somebody who lives quite simply. It'll often be somebody who's quite humble and faithful. And it'll nearly always be somebody who has a servant heart. And so when we take the time to consider it, that's probably the sort of answer a lot of us would give. You can probably picture someone um, who you know or knew and you can think, yeah, that thats be a really good person to emulate. They, they're a really good disciple of Jesus. And yet some of the most popular and the most followed Christians in the world are pretty much the exact opposite of that picture that that I just gave. Uh, Some of those who have the biggest followings aren't much more than glorified motivational speakers with a message of how to be blessed with with wealth and, and health and happiness in this life and And it seems that the characteristic to a lot of these people, the main thing that they have going for them is the ability to be able to make their listeners feel really good about themselves or to be able to make them feel that, yes, I can do this and I'm gonna, yeah, take hold of this. Now, and all the while, what they're doing is they're raking in the big bucks that helps them to enjoy their life of health and wealth and fame. And so some of the most followed Christians might be motivational speakers. Uh, They'll often be recording artists. Um, They might be tele-evangelists. They might be movie stars who just happen to be Christians. Or in Australia, they might be more likely to be a sports star who just happens to be a Christian because these are the people that we like to look up to, the people that we think we'd like to be like. So who's getting followed? Well, I sort of had a look at on the internet, say, okay, who are some of the most followed Christians or people who claim to be Christians out in the world? And someone like Joel Osteen, he has 22 million followers on Facebook. Uh, Someone like Joyce Meyer has 11 million followers on Facebook. In Australia, probably one of the most prominent people would be Brian Houston, um, and he's got 350,000 followers. Now. If we compare these celebrity Christians to others whom we know, how does it come up? Um, Let me tell you about a young lady that Robert and I both know. As a young single Christian woman, she's moved to a North African country. Um, She's already learned Arabic before she went there, but she's moved there to um, get more fluent in Arabic but also to start sharing the gospel with Muslim women. Now, I'm definitely not allowed to tell you her name, particularly with it being recorded. Um, I'm, I, I do know the country that she's in, but I'm probably not supposed to know the country that she's in, because for this information to get out, her life would be in more danger than what it currently is. And even if not in such great danger, if, if the authorities in the country in which she lived um, knew that she was there as a missionary, they would almost certainly kick her out of the country. Now, what sorts of Christians do we truly want to model our lives on? People like that young lass who has given up everything that this life has to offer, seemingly, to go on and serve Christ? Or do we look to celebrity Christians? in verse 7 Paul makes a pretty big call and, and it's not the sort of thing that I'm in the habit of saying he said brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us now usually the last message that I want any of you lot to take home from from a message that I've given is that you should become like me Imagine what sort of a church would be like if you lot were all just like me. I know Robin wouldn't be able to stand it, uh, and I don't think any of you lot would either. I mean, any preacher who has the tiniest little skerrick of humility would have a great deal of trouble and difficulty in saying to his congregation each week, you should be just like me, you know. But that's what Paul has just said. Now, he said it in the past, but in the past he's, he's qualified it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right? So when he said that, what he's really saying is imitate Christ. Just like I imitate Christ, that's what you should be doing as well. But that's very different to what, he's, to what it sounds like he's saying here. Imitate me. Now, in the immediate passage that we're studying today, He doesn't put that qualifier in, in the same way. But within the overall context of Philippians, imitating Christ is exactly what he's talking about. Disciples of Jesus should be modelling themselves on Jesus Christ. Are we agreed on that? Yeah, good. And as a disciple of Jesus, this is what Paul has been doing. He has been imitating Christ. And earlier on in the letter, he gave the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And the way that these blokes were living was also imitating Christ. And so when he's saying, you lot should imitate me, this isn't some kind of ego trip for Paul. Uh, This is basic discipleship 101. What's it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. Because following the teacher, that's what a disciple does. Okay, so we're following Christ. But what we learn from this today is there's a really important place here for Christian role models. Now, we Australians, we might have a bit of trouble with that. Um, we all know about tall poppy syndrome. right? We always want to talk, tear down the tall poppy. But it's really important for us to recognise amongst us those who are good Christian role models and learn from them. Uh, Does it really matter who it is that we look up to as a role model? Well, too right it does. Paul's telling the Philippian church that there's some in their midst who are truly worth following and they're worth walking with. So last week... Uh, we had a bit of an image of a race or a journey. It sort of, it sort of mixes the meta- metaphors here for a little bit, um, where we're striving for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you can choose whichever metaphor, whichever image you want, running the Christian race or walking the Christian walk. And this isn't something that we do on our own. We journey together which is why he says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Right, so in the church, there are those who are following the example of Paul. And in this, they're following also the example of Christ. And we should recognise these people and watch these people and learn from them and do likewise but there's also those who we should definitely not follow. He says here that there's many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, that really puts the cat among the pigeons, doesn't it? We would generally think that enemies of the cross of Christ, well, they're those non-Christians, and especially maybe they're the persecutors of Christians. In fact that maybe they're the ones who are responsible for having Paul locked up and put in jail where he's writing this letter from but I'm pretty sure that's not what Paul's talking about here in this section of Paul's letter to the Philippians that we've been in for the last few weeks he's been developing our understanding of something that he said right back in chapter 1 when he said for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? He's been talking about living with an eternal perspective. Instead of having our eyes fixated on the current earthly existence, we have our our eyes fixated on Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 27, he said, "'Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ.'" So saying that this should so much be a part of who we are and what we believe. It it, it becomes the very thing that we do in our lives. The manner in which we live should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Should be worthy of this upward calling that we have. In chapter 2 verse 12 he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And... um, In today's reading shortly, we're going to see why there's fear and trembling involved. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? We've been covering this stuff over the last few weeks. And along the way, he's also talked about the humility of Jesus Christ and how we ourselves should be humble and how we should seek the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's talked about righteousness and blamelessness And he's tied this to having a circumcised heart and we we talked about what that means it's where the flesh is pruned away from the heart all of our ungodly earthly desires are pruned away from the heart and we start to see things the way that god sees things and we start to value things the way god values things and we talked about how we back in the old testament when god talked about having and an uncircumcised heart. He was wanting them to start caring for people around them, caring for the widows and the orphans and the alien. And this is where the cross leads us to. It leads us to this place where it's not only Paul who's going to say it, it's us who's going to say, for to me to live is Christ and for to me to die is gain. And in all of this context, therefore, when he's talking about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, he's actually talking about people who are in the church. You see, as disciples of Jesus, we should be embracing the cross of Christ and embracing all of what it represents, sacrifice, humility, a letting go of all that this life has to offer because our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ and on eternity. It's a putting to death of sin. It's a putting to death of our old sinful person and our old sinful ways, which are the ways of the world, and it's to be raised up anew in Jesus Christ. As disciples of Jesus, we embrace the cross and all of what it represents it's about having this eternal perspective. And when I'm talking about, when I talk about having an eternal perspective, I'm not talking about, okay, this is an op- one of the options by which we live by. I'm talking about having this, such a mindset that it shapes everything in this life. So as disciples of Jesus, we should be embracing the cross But tears well up in Paul's eyes when he considers the position and the fate of many, notice that, many in the church who walk as enemies of the cross. That means that there's many who, well, the way that they live is no different to the way that the people of the world would live. And when Paul's saying this, this isn't something that he hasn't thought out. It's not something that he's just thrown in, thrown in there with, like a thought bubble. He's told them about it before. In fact, he says, I've often spoken about this. You know, a lot of what we read in the New Testament letters reflects the teaching that Jesus gave, often in the form of Parables. And one of my favourite parables, probably because I come from an agricultural background, is the parable of the sower. All right, so if you remember, most of you will be familiar with the parable of the sower. The seed that's getting planted is the word of God. And some of that seed, it lands on the hard, stony ground and never gets a chance to germinate so the birds just swoop in and gobble it up and that's like when when the word of God is preached some people it's just just like water off a duck's back you think this is the most moving amazing message of of the gospel and people go eh, why would you believe any of that nonsense and just continue on their merry way but then it tells us about two other different soil types where the seed actually takes germinates and takes root and starts growing Right. so some of it falls on the on the stony ground sorry I said stony ground before didn't I I should have said the hard path this time it falls on the stony ground and it actually gets up and growing real quick but then it gets hot and dry and it just withers away because it's got no root and that represents those who hear the gospel and they respond to the gospel but as soon as some troubles and persecutions come they don't persist All of a sudden, when they realise, oh, this is actually going to be a bit tough going. I thought everybody would like me if I was a Christian and you realise that you're actually at odds with some people and and you realise that the world's just not really that happy with you and it really gets tough going and some people just drop away at that point. But this is the one that I think applies for today. The next soil type is the seed that falls on the weedy or the thorny ground. And it gets up and it gets grown, but then the weeds get up and grow amongst it. And, and those of you who are farmers know very well that those nasty little weedies are, are quite um, quite greedy. They take all of the goodies, all of the nutrients and all of the, all of the moisture away from the crops and the crop just can't seem to compete with it. And it chokes the crop out. And that represents those who hear the word of God and they start off with Jesus Christ, but the things of the world become more important to them. And what they began never goes through to bearing fruit. So Jesus told us a parable about this, about how things of the world distract us from this and stops us from being fruitful. And now, with tears in his eyes, Paul's saying, I'm seeing way too much of this going on. I'm seeing way too much of this. we people who start out following Jesus, but the things of the world are more important to them. And instead of walking as disciples of Jesus, they're walking in the same way that enemies of the cross walk. Now, how serious this is. It's extremely serious. Now, anyone who stands by the human teaching of once saved, always saved, is going to have a fair bit of trouble with this verse 19. Because verse 19 says, their end is destruction. Does that give you an indication of why Paul's tearing up about this? People who started out following Jesus so distracted by the ways of the world their end is destruction and there are many people in the church today who are not walking as disciples of jesus they're walking as enemies of the cross and those who walk as enemies of the cross will die as enemies of the cross paul can't be more clear their end is destruction there is a terrible, terrible version of the gospel being preached today. I call it easy believism. It's very common coming out of North America. Um, and it's very common in Australia now. It's the gospel that says, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and that's it. It's all good. Saved for all eternity, just believe in Jesus. Job's done. And those who live by this often embrace worldliness and often live as enemies of the cross. So for one example, we spoke about this last week about the dangers of the prosperity gospel. Um, and, and, And why are so many churches who are following and teaching the prosperity gospel, why are they growing so quick? I'll tell you why. It's because essentially the message that they're giving and the road that they're encouraging their listeners to walk is the same as the road that enemies of the cross walk. And when one treads the path of the prosperity gospel, they, they have the opinion and they have the belief that, that they're walking by the Spirit. But in fact, they're not walking by the Spirit at all. They're walking contrary to the way of the cross and they're on the highway to hell, right? So that's one example of what it means to walk as as an enemy of the cross, but it's much broader than that. Paul says, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, we actually skip forward to that verse to, to, to give you a bit of a heads up about what we're going to talk about today, last week. And last week, I told a bit of a joke, and... I don't think a single person laughed. I was quite traumatised by that. Um, and I don't know whether it was because you'd, you'd pretty much gone asleep and therefore you didn't hear the joke or whether you just thought my jokes aren't funny. Um, either way, I was pretty traumatised. But I said at that point, if, if, if their God is their belly, well, some people's gods are bigger than others. And I think I might have glanced down at about that stage. Still no laugh. Oh, thanks, Neil. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, that's the go. A bit of encouragement. You know, in some churches, they want you to go, preach it, brother, preach it, brother. I, I, just a little laugh occasionally and do. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> is he talking about fat people? I don't think so. I think what it means is their priorities and what they crave for are physical cravings. Right? So in a poorer society, where a person whose God is their belly, well, they might be worried about getting a good feed every day. In a wealthy society like ours, it's probably talking about somebody who's more worried about body image. And so for your God to be your belly, it could mean that you're a gourmet and you only want to eat the very finest food cooked by the best chefs. Or it could mean that you're a glutton and all that you think about is food. Or... It could mean that you're a health freak and that you're very picky and very choosy about what you're willing to put in your body and only organic, organic kale grown on the slopes of an ancient Buddhist monastery is what you're willing to put into your body. Or you could just be like me and love your wife's cooking way too much. And yes, it can include any of these things, but it simply represents being fixated on physical stuff instead of having our eyes fixed on eternity with Jesus Christ. And we drew this out last week, what it means to have our eyes fixed on physical stuff. It includes, but it doesn't just mean craving more money. It includes, but doesn't just mean craving more stuff. It can even relate to health and to life itself when these things become the very focus of our existence and our being. For some people, when they talk about faith, their biggest faith is that they might get physically healed. We're believing for a miracle. Um, And they'll tell you about that over and over and over again. Or they might have faith that they're going to have a very long life. By the way, welcome Nanny. Is Nanny gone to sleep? She has, oh there she is. Hello Nanny, Robin's grandmother there. She's 99, turns 100 in December. And um, she's, she's looking again. Ken's giving her a clap, yeah, that's a go. Now I know Nanny well enough to know, because it was actually a few years ago, we were working out all the family celebrations and, and Robin was talking about how um, in the same year that Robin turns 50, Nanny would be turning 100 And so Robin was going to invite Nanny to Robin's birthday and Nanny said, I respectfully decline. Because a few years ago, last thing she wanted to do was live to 100. She wants to be with Jesus. Hey, Nanny, she's told me this often. She told me this often, that I'm just looking forward to the day I can be with Jesus. But I think now that she's getting close to 100, she's willing to, to delay that but she still knows what will be better. Now, for some people, this is what they crave. But physical stuff is going to pass away. Wealth is going to pass away. Health, or lack thereof, is going to pass away. And even physical life is going to pass away. Let none of these things be our God. And a second indictment of those who live as enemies of the cross is they glory in their shame. As disciples of Jesus, we're not the same as what we once were. We're changed. We're transformed. We've been renewed. And he is continuing to transform us. He is continuing to to change us. He is continuing to make us more and more like him, to become a Christian is such a radical transformation. Jesus describes it as being born again. We are no longer what we once were. And the stuff that we used to think was pretty good all right, some of that we now understand is shameful. Stuff which we used to think was going to give us meaning in life, we're now ashamed of it. Stuff which we used to think determined actually who we are and who we were. We're now ashamed of it. And yet, in the church, there are those who continue to, to delight in riches. But didn't Jesus say that it's, an easy, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And in the church, there's there's those who glory in the promotion of health and long life and they hold on to life and they just grasp hold of it as if this is the most valuable thing that any of us could ever have. But didn't Jesus say whoever would save his life will lose it? And whoever loses his life for, for me and my sake will find it? And in the church... We know that God calls us to a higher ethic. Nah, doesn't matter. Look at the freedoms that we have in Jesus. And some act as if drunkenness doesn't matter. Many ignore the plight of the fatherless and the poor as if that doesn't matter. Our young men and women check up together without getting married even though they call themselves Christians, as if it doesn't matter. And there are even churches who celebrate the marrying of men to men and women to women as if it didn't matter. They glory in their shame. Why? Why is this not only happening in the church, all of these things, but why is it so common? Why do many who profess to being Christians walk in the same way as enemies of the cross? There's a very simple reason for that. It's having a very short-term view. And their eyes are set on earthly things. And their minds are set on earthly things. And, and they're set on gratifying their immediate earthly desires. Now let's not just use the word they. I can use the word me there. In many ways, my mind gets set on immediate earthly things and gratifying my own earthly desires. Does anybody there can insert the word me there for you guys as well? If our minds are set on earthly things, our mindset is the same mindset as enemies of the cross. But hasn't Jesus saved us from all this? This is the point at which you can go, too right he has. Let's hear that. Too right he has. Hasn't Jesus saved us from all this? Too right he has. Verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now that's not a perfect translation. Uh, the Greek word there is polytuma, which which relates more to a place than the citizenship itself, all right? And so some translations, such as the Revised Standard Version, uh, get it a little bit bit better by saying, our commonwealth is in heaven. Um, It's like saying our nation state or our kingdom, our land is in heaven. Basically, here, on this earth, we are strangers, we are aliens. Our citizenship belongs somewhere else because that's where our land is. Now, in the last few years, we Australians have gotten used to something called dual citizenship. Uh, And we actually have a local example of this where a prominent person who used to be a local all of a sudden realized that, that he was a citizen of New Zealand. And poor old Barnaby Joyce had no idea that he was a citizen of New Zealand. And so by our constitution, he gave allegiance to a foreign power and therefore couldn't be in our parliament. And so what did he have to do? He had to renounce the citizenship of being a Kiwi so that he could then serve in parliament again. And as Christians, we have to renounce earthly citizenship. As Christians, our nation state, our commonwealth is not on this earth. And in fact, we renounce our earthly ways. We we renounce our earthly passions. We renounce our earthly desires. We die to all these and we've been born again. And our new nation state, our new commonwealth, our new land is in heaven. So we renounce our allegiance to a foreign power, earthliness. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't be good Australian citizens. Yes, we should be good Australian citizens. But we renounce our earthliness because we are citizens of heaven. Now, if there's one thing that I've learned um, about when you're travelling to a different land or a different state or a different nation, it's pretty important to turn up there with the right equipment when you get there. Right, so, I sort of suspect that you wouldn't want to turn up in Alaska in T-shirt and thongs. And you probably don't want to go to Papua New Guinea or India or somewhere like that in the middle of summer wearing your thermals and your UGG boots. And you probably don't want to go to England, well probably any time really, but no, you probably don't want to go to England without taking a raincoat. Now I've just given you three countries, I've never been to any of these, but this is the perspective I have on them. So if you're going to go somewhere, you've got to go prepared. And if you're going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ, you need to be equipped to spend eternity with Christ. And I don't know about you, but I don't think my body's going to cut it. I've already got an ankle that's been fused. It'll never bend again. I can't run. I have a lot of trouble walking on sand. It's amazing the things that, that, that it affects. Walking uphill, no problem. Walking downhill, very problematic. Right? My ankle's no good, but guess what? I've got a new one on order. Last year, doing my sprinkler installation work about the place, I overused my right shoulder and It was just, it got so sore, I just couldn't use it. I couldn't lift anything with it. And so then I started favoring that shoulder and using my left shoulder. Guess what happened? It did the same thing. I ended up with two shoulders. I could hardly lift anything, hardly do anything. And it took, I don't know, eight or 10 months of physio and exercises and whatnot to get them back somewhere near normal. And they're still not as strong as they used to be. You know what I've learned? I'm getting old my body's wearing out and my mother-in-law's laughing over there with Danny sitting beside her at 99 and I'm saying I'm getting old um, but my body's wearing out but you end up if you realize that you're getting old and your body is wearing out come on at least half of you wow now i know who's still awake But i I got new shoulders on order too. There's a pretty good replacement plan in place. Our commonwealth, our nation state, our land, our home is in heaven. And Paul says from heaven we await a savior. Um, Some of you will know our dog Gruber. Um, She loves going for a drive in the ute And so when I press the button and the roller door starts going up, she gets up from where she is and starts looking a little bit excited. And then when I go outside and I start putting my boots on, you'd think that she was at a tennis match. She looks at the ute, she looks at me. Looks at the ute, looks at me. Looks at the ute, looks at me. And then when I get up and start walking towards the gate to undo the gate, she physically starts quivering. She starts quivering, and she starts wandering over to the ute, and she's standing near by the ute, quivering. And I just say, get up. Get up. She's oh, she's keen. She's got this eager expectation, right? I've just pe- painted the picture of eager expectation. Some of you have seen something like that before, haven't you? Ken, I bet you've got working dogs that when you get near the cattle, they're like that. Oh. If not, you'll, get, you'll find a better one sometime. Yeah. Right. Now, that's the sort of eager expectation. That's the sort of eager anticipation, the eager waiting that we have for the return of Jesus. At least that's what it should have. I'm excited. I'm waiting. But how about you? Is that the eager expectation that you have for Jesus? Or is my dog more excited about having a ride in the youth than what you are about Jesus coming back? That puts a bit bit of a touch of reality on it, doesn't it? Is my dog more excited about having a ride in the ute than you are about Jesus returning? And that gives us a bit of a hint as to what kind of a mindset we've got, whether I'm concentrating on Christ or whether I'm actually really comfortable and really enjoying this world, thank you very much. You see, for, for many of us, life's just too good. Life's too good, too good. We live in a land where we've got everything that we need. And you might be just thinking, I just want to, I want to see the kids grow up. I want to see the grandkids grow up. I want to see the great-grandkids grow up. I want to see the great-great-grandkids grow up. It just never stops. We have, we have these things we want to achieve before Jesus returns. But when Jesus comes, he's not going to come empty-handed. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, some people are really happy with the bodies they've already got. But the thing is, no matter how marvelous your body, no matter how athletic or how shapely or how finely tuned it is, your body is going to get old and sick and it's gonna die. And the thing is, even people who should know better act as if their physical body and living a long life is the most important thing to them. But no matter how wonderful your body might be, do you know how Paul describes it? It's a lowly body. Some of us are very aware that our body is a lowly body. Others, not so much. But it's okay to have a lowly body the lord jesus christ is going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body we're no longer going to have a body that's going to get old our body will no longer get sick our body will no longer get aches or pains your body's no longer going to have headaches or migraines that you've had to bear since you're a child Your body will no longer have allergies and so you'll be able to eat those things that you once used to love. Your body isn't going to suffer from depression anymore and it's not going to suffer from anxiety anymore because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to transform our lowly bodies to be just like his glorious body. How? Some people want to know, well, how can that happen? Well, it's not the how that matters. It's the who that matters. Because when we know the who, the how takes care of itself. The Lord Jesus Christ is the who. It's Jesus who's going to transfer our body, to transform our bodies. And Jesus can do anything he jolly well likes. Because Jesus has the power that's even able to subject all things to him. All things will be under Christ. Do you think the transformation of your body is going to be any trouble for him? Not at all. And the one who has been raised from the dead, to him belongs all power. To him belongs all authority. To the Lord Jesus Christ belongs all might. And by this power, we will be transformed. And when we think about things like this. Isn't it exciting? Isn't it is not and exciting? And, and when you think about things like this, why on earth do we desire earthly things? They just can't compare, can they? Which is why Paul said, right back in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We live this life we have for the Lord Jesus Christ. We enjoy the life that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ. But everything about it, should, everything that we do, should be shaped and formed by the glory that we're heading towards. And we look forward to that day. So Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul really, really loves this church in Philippi. And he doesn't want to see them become like those who are destined for destruction. You know, a lot of the letters that Paul wrote were written to churches to try and, who were running amok basically, and he's trying to write to them to correct some stuff that's going on. Philippians is a bit different in that regard. He's really writing to this church because he loves them and he delights in them and while he gives them warnings he actually puts it more in the context of what's happening in other places. And he wants to see that these guys don't become like some others. He wants them to stand firm and not be distracted by things of the world and and all of the worldly desires, but to eagerly await the return of Christ. So where am I going to see the most excitement in the future? In my dog that, that she's excited about having a ride in the back of the ute? Or am I going to see more excitement in our faces knowing that Jesus is coming Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, when you taught your disciples to pray, you taught them to say, your kingdom come. And Lord, we pray this today. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to break into this world. We pray for your kingdom to to grow in our hearts, for your kingdom to grow in our town, for your kingdom to grow in this district and in our nation and in the world. But, Lord, we know that while we know you as Saviour, we know that our salvation isn't yet complete and that when you come again, you will come as Saviour. And so we also pray your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, as our Saviour. Lord, we eagerly anticipate the day when you will return. And Lord, help us to fix our eyes on this day. Help us to fix our ambitions and our hopes and our dreams on this day when you will come in glory and you will come bringing glory. But Lord, until that day, help us to embrace the way of Jesus Christ. Help us to embrace the way of the cross of Christ and to renounce our preoccupation with worldliness and earthly desires Lord we delight in you and we ask that you would help us to live with an eternal perspective today bringing glory to you in all things in Jesus name Amen